Uh, thanks for having me. Really good to be here. I love any, every opportunity I get to, to come preach to Troll South. And it's not been often in the last, uh, last couple of years for obvious reasons. Um, so we're going to jump right in. Grab your Bibles. We're in the book of Nehemiah. This is uh, the next to last sermon in Nehemiah. Is that right, Elliot? You guys are finishing up next week and then we're moving into Advent. So I'm excited to kind of begin to take us home a little bit. So go to Nehemiah chapter 12, please. And uh, I'm going to read to us, starting in verse 27. So Nehemiah 12, 27, and I'm going to read to verse 43. Or I will try to read to verse 43, and you'll know what I mean in a little bit. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived, and they were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. The musicians also were brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Netophathites and from Beth Gilgal and from the area of Geba and Osmaveth. For the musicians had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. When the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people and the gates and the wall. I had the leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall. I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed on top of the wall to the right toward the dung gate. They drew the, the short straw. <laughs> Hashiah and half the leaders of Judah followed them, along with Azariah, Ezra, Meshullam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, as well as some of the priests with trumpets. And also Zechariah, son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, and the son of Mataniah, and the son of Micaiah, the son of Zakur, the son of Asaph, and his associates. Shemaiah, Azarel, Milalai, Galalai, Mai. Just making sure you're with me. Nathaniel, Judah, and Hanani, with musical instruments prescribed by David, the man of God. Ezra, the teacher of the law, led the procession. At the fountain gate, they continued directly above the steps of the city of David on the ascent of the wall, and passed above the site of David's palace to the water gate on the east. Verse 38, the second choir proceeded in the opposite direction. I followed them on top of the wall together with half the people, past the tower of the ovens to the broad wall, over the gate of Ephraim, the Jeshana gate, the fish gate, the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, as far as the sheep gate. At the gate of the guard, they stopped. The two choirs that gave thanks then took their places in the house of God, so did I, together with half the officials, as well as the priests, Eliakim, Masai, Miniamen, Micaiah, Eloinai, Zechariah, and Hananiah, and with their trumpets. And also Masai, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzi, Jehahana, Milkijah, I'm losing my edge, Elam, and Ezer. The choirs sang under the direction of Jezrehiah. In verse 43, and on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. And the women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem could be heard far away. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Jesus, uh, my goodness, thank you that you know our names. Uh, you know us so intimately. You, you see us. You really do. You, you, uh, you see those things we're carrying in that we don't know we're carrying um, we see the thing, or you see the things that uh, are deep within us that maybe we checked at the door. Um, Lord, you, you are in touch with the most true, real reality of who we are. 
even more than we are. And Lord, it's, it's, it's that self that you love, and it's that self you want to, to meet now. Lord, we thank you that you, you meet us where we are, but you never leave us there. You're always taking us somewhere, and that, that place is a beautiful future. Um, a, a, a beautiful future, even here in this, on this earth, of a deeper, more real, um, more abiding relationship with you. And so, Lord, we have the chance now through your word to, to be taught and instructed and our, our minds opened, our imaginations sanctified to see who we really are in you. And so I pray that you would do that. I pray that you would um, cut through the things that we have put uh, in front of who we really are because we think that no one wants that. And you would meet us exactly here and now. And so it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So take a look at that last verse, verse 43. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices. They were rejoicing because God had given them great joy. And then I cheated. This is NIV, but I borrowed the last line from the ESV because in the ESV, it says this, the joy of Jerusalem could be heard far away. When is the last time you heard the joy of something from far away? I can definitely remember one time or, or one place that I hear this. Um, I'm from L.A. originally. It's lower Alabama. <laughs> and in lower Alabama, we love our football. So I'm a, I'm a graduate of the University of Alabama, and I can remember the very first national championship we won with Nick Saban. So it's been about 25 since then, but uh, this was... Um, people don't follow football enough. That was a joke. Um, the vi- Thank you. Oh, somebody. I'm going to find you afterward. The very first national championship we ever won with Nick Saban, um, maybe my junior, senior year, I remember running outside of my house screaming to find that every other person in the city of Tuscaloosa was running outside their houses screaming. And we were probably five miles from the stadium, and it wasn't the sound of the stadium I heard. It was literally the sound of the neighborhoods like the back alleys, like people were literally rejoicing. And the whole city of Tuscaloosa, you could hear the shout rising up from it. So we're just going to start with a very basic observation from this text. Rejoicing comes from joy, right? Earth shattering, I know, but but very true and very important. Rejoicing, the outward expression of rejoicing comes from a place of joy, And so this is a passage about joy because these people are dancing and they're shouting and they're doing cartwheels. They're banging cymbals. They're blowing on trumpets. They're marching around in 1,000 person choirs. Why? Because they have this thing called joy. And the sound of their joy could be heard from far away. So all this behavior is an outward sign of an inward reality. It's an outward expression of an inward reality. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about joy. What is it? What is joy? Where do you get it? And then when you got it, what do you do with it? Okay, that'll be kind of how we follow in these next few minutes. What is joy? Where do you get it? And then when you got it, what do you do with it? So we got to talk first about what joy actually is. If you just ask the average person, I'm not looking for like a theological answer or even like a scientific grammatical answer. If you just kind of get the person, the general person's feelings on joy, they're basically going to say this. They're going to talk about something about these things, their needs. They're going to talk about their desires. 
And then they're going to talk about, whether they use these words or not, they're going to talk about expectations. And the understanding of joy, just kind of colloquially, would be that when my needs, my desires, and my expectations are met, why I drew heart like that, it produces something. That joy flows from my basic needs, desires, and expectations being met. That's just kind of generally how we assume, right? Because joy is kind of a heart thing, right? And so as long as things are good, then I'm going to have joy. But there's two main problems with this kind of a scheme, with this kind of just, uh, you know, gut reaction or gut understanding of what joy is. The first problem is that these are some of the most fickle things in our lives, now, I can assume, just kind of knowing the demographic of this part of Nashville and the demographic of Midtown Fellowship, a lot of us have the financial means, the education means, the intellectual means to meet most of our needs. There's not a lot of people that go to Midtown. I'm not saying there's none, but there's not a lot of people that are going hungry at Midtown Fellowship. There's not a lot of people that are really struggling to feel physically safe in their homes. There are some. But it's not generally the, the, the prevailing reality of Midtowners. But even with those basic needs being met, we have to agree that every single one of us is one moment away from being in that kind of a situation. One car accident away, one global pandemic that no one foresaw away from having our basic needs met. And even still with our basic needs met, a lot of us probably walk around with some sense of anxiety wondering, am I going to be okay? And then desires. Every day is just a changing menu of what I want, my desires. The things even that go beyond these basic needs that would be things I say like, that, that's fulfillment for me. If I could have this, if I could have that. Constantly changing, huge menu. And then expectations, good grief. In the course of a day, I can even tell you the way that just my expectations for each new moment, each new interaction, you know, my relationships with my wife and my kids, my expectations are constantly changing. So these are not stable things. These are not foundational, sure, steady things. And so to believe that joy is actually anchored in things like that, I don't know about you, but that's, that's troubling to me. I don't want my joy to be based on those things. So something's wrong with this scheme. The second reason, the second problem is this actually doesn't even match our experience. It's actually not true experientially if you think about it, We'll all agree we have instances and examples in our lives of where my circumstances aren't matching the joy of my heart. We've all woke up when things in our lives are actually pretty good and we feel in the dumps. That's just a reality. If you woke up and you're just kind of feeling down and I asked you, well, what about this? What about that? You put it all on paper and it's like, well, man, why am I feeling this way? So I can have a lot of these things and still not have joy. And conversely, there are sometimes rare, might seem, but there are instances in our lives where I don't have these things and I still have a peace and a joy that's inexplicable. It's hard to define, hard to understand. In other words, the problem with this is that what we really mean when we talk about needs, desires, and expectations is not joy, it's something called happiness. And I don't want to 
I don't want to belittle that, but let me define that, right? Joy is something different than happiness. Joy is something different than, than feeling up on a particular day. Because if I put happiness here instead of joy, then it actually is usually true that if my needs are met and my desires are met and my expectations are being met, well, goodness, I don't know when that was for me, but I bet you if it happened, I'd be pretty happy. Okay? Because happiness is an emotion. Happiness is emotionally tied to my circumstances. It's by and large, it's connected to what's going on in my life. And that's, I mean, if nothing else, that's just biological. If I'm hungry, if I'm tired, if I'm stuck in traffic and I'm late somewhere, then yeah, I'm probably going to be unhappy. And that's okay. That's, that's how our emotions work. That's how even the brain science of our bodies works. But joy is something different. What is being described in this passage of scripture is something different than just happiness. So let me give you another little scheme that'll help. So I said I'm from LA. Uh, we go out on the river a lot in LA. Uh, grew up spending time on the Chattahoochee and the Choctahatchee rivers. My dad would teach me how to drive a boat. I got my boating license, I think before I got my driver's license. When you're, when you're in a boat, especially on a river, you follow uh, some, some directions on these things called buoys. I'm just gonna, this is just a little buoy. Just kind of pretend with me for a second, okay? The buoy floats on top of the water. You know what I'm talking about? You guys know what a buoy is? Okay, so like if it's a green buoy, you gotta stay on a certain side of it. If it's a red buoy, you stay on another side of it. It kind of helps traffic flow in the river. Well, our emotions, like happiness, are like buoys on top of the water. They're floating on the water. They're affected by the water. They float this way and that way depending on the current. If there's storms, if there's wind, the buoy moves around. But joy is something different. Joy would be what that buoy is anchored to at the bottom. Joy is to happiness what that anchor holding the buoy grounded into the bedrock of the ocean floor, what that is to the buoy on top. It's, it's something different. It's entirely other. It's deeper, for example, or for instance, it's, it's stronger. It isn't affected by the movement of the wind and the waves. And that is how scripture, that is how God describes to us what joy is in our lives. Let me try to explain this a little bit more to you. In 1938, uh, there was a group of scientists that began what is now, I think, the, maybe the longest and the broadest study of human health and happiness, just kind of holistic wellness. And it started in 1938 with a group of 268 Harvard sophomores. They followed these, these Harvard sophomores all the way till today. I think there's only about 19 of them uh, still alive. But they then began to study their families, their wives, their children. So it's a, a few generations down. And they looked at everything you can imagine. They looked at health metrics. Like, do they, what kind of diseases do they have? What's their cholesterol level? What's their weight? But they also looked at non-physical markers. Like, they gave them questionnaires and they checked in with them and they had them do surveys about their jobs, about their leisure, about what they were doing with their life, about their relationships, how their marriages were going, how their relationships with their kids were going. They, they looked at all these things to try to determine what makes a person healthy, what makes a person happy. And they found a lot of things, but the thing that surprised all of them 
especially back in you know, the 30s when this data started to come out, the thing that surprised all of them is that what they could tie to good health and good happiness actually was no single or even group of health metrics like we would expect. For example, cholesterol level. What is even more important than a 50-year-old person's cholesterol level for their health in the future is not their cholesterol level, it's the quality of their relationships. That's what they found. That's scientifically you know, studied and verified that of these 100 or 268 sophomores and then the families that came from them, these people's health and happiness could be connected to the quality of their relationships, not a health metric, not heart disease, right? Not weight. What makes us healthy people is healthy relationships, is what they found. So what even science can see when it looks close enough and it looks wide enough, what even science can see is that what we need as human beings is relationship. What we desire is relationship. What we expect deep down, deep down, is relationship. So that means the most fundamental thing about ourselves is actually our connection to something outside of ourselves, which is not what we typically think of when we think of these things. This is me, me, me. And emotionally, physically, yeah. But this passage of scripture, the rest of scripture, and even this Harvard study found something else that's true, that there's a whole nother level. There's a whole basement floor to your life, your reality, your identity, that has a lot more to do with even those surface things like your health, and it's this thing called relationship. And this is where scripture is extremely helpful. This is where your faith, your Christian faith, and even for people that are not Christians, this is why I think people yearn for, for belief in something deeper because it's a reality and they want to find it. So even if you're going for a different religion, even if you're looking for answers in a different place, you're looking for that deep level that scripture explains to us is why we were made for relationship. And the reason for that is because we need love. And I know you're thinking, okay, right, pastor, we're in church. Love makes sense. But let's dig into that for a second with me. Why is it that for those hundreds of people, men and women, children that they studied, why is it that their relationships were a better connector for their physical health than even some of their physical health metrics? Because when I'm loved, which means I'm honored, I'm cherished, somebody sees me and values me, someone acts toward me like I am actually worth something, there is something in me that is met. There is some need that is met that's very basic, that's very important, that without it, I'm gonna get sick and I'm gonna die young. What I really desire above all else is to be loved. What I most deeply expect of my life is to be loved by another and not just loved in a broken way, which is what all our human relationships eventually give us. Right? Some, some version of less than perfect love. No, what I actually desire is perfect love. That's what scripture says. 
That's what scripture says Adam and Eve were originally created for, perfect, whole love, where they are honored, they're valued, they're cherished, they're desired, they're seen as beautiful. And friends, that is the heart of the gospel, that our need is to be loved and Jesus does, that our desire is to be loved and Jesus does, that all our expectations pale next to this fundamental expectation to be loved and Jesus does for you. So do you see what this does for our joy? If my joy is actually most deeply rooted in my being loved, if these things are really all pointing toward love, and Jesus already does that for me, and he does it perfectly, and he doesn't change, and it doesn't ebb or flow like the water on top, then my happiness is not what I'm anchored in. My joy is what I'm anchored in, and my joy comes in my being loved by him. My joy comes in my being loved by him. And so joy is not some fickle and uncontrollable thing. It's not tied to my circumstances at all. It doesn't come when all my circumstances are being met and it doesn't go when my circumstances are not being met. Joy is constant because joy is the fact and the experience that Jesus loves me. It's not an emotion. It's a fruit of the spirit, right? Love. Joy, second one, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These things are fruits. They're expressions of an inward reality for us, which is that the savior of the world, the creator of the world, the, the perfect designer of you loves you. So joy is the reality, the tangible reality that Jesus loves me, that I'm worth something wildly valuable that I'm precious and I'm beautiful, that I'm significant and I'm worthy of respect and honor. Joy is a fruit of a relationship that we most basically were made for, a relationship with Jesus. And listen to some scriptures that talk about this love of the Lord for you and the joy that comes from it. In Hebrews 12 too, I think we use this passage pretty often at Midtown, and I'm glad we do. Hebrews 12, two says, for the joy set before him. So it says there's joy that Jesus had in front of him that he was interested in. When I set something in front of me, it means I, it's right there and I wanna go get it. It says that for the joy set before him, what did Jesus do? He endured the cross, which means he had a joy set before him that he wanted, it was worth it for him, and so it made him even go to the cross, which obviously should ask, make us ask the question, well, what was that? What was that thing that he cared so much about? And it's the love he had for us. We, you, every single one of us, if you're in Christ, you are the joy that was set before Jesus. And for your sake, he endured the cross for you. And so Psalm 16, David can say in Psalm 16, in your presence, which is relationship, right? In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Y'all, I know, I don't know how long you've been a Christian. If you've been a Christian a long time, that might just be Christian stuff that you know, you've read it, you've heard it. Can we for a second just pause and realize this Psalm just says at the right hand of Jesus, which means who sits at the right hand of Jesus? Someone close to Jesus. It says at the right hand of Jesus, where you sit are pleasures forevermore. 
And in John 15, Jesus can say, as the Father has loved me, <laughs> this is crazy, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now abide in my love. Rest in my love. Stay in my love. Sit there and stay a while. Drink it up. And then Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you. Whose joy is it? His joy. That his joy may be in us. That perfect relationship of love he has with us would be our anchor. It would be the thing that holds us. He says that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. We're not talking about up here. We're not talking about a joy that ebbs and flows. We're not talking about a joy that's sometimes empty, sometimes full. We're talking about the reality of being loved by Jesus. So that's what joy is, and that's where you get it. It's kind of one and one and uh, you know one and the same thing. What it is and where I get it are the same thing. It's a relationship with Jesus. So the last thing we got to talk about is what this passage shows us, which is what do we do when we get this joy? What do we do in our lives? What, what is the expression in our lives of this joy? And we see it in this whole passage. This passage is a passage of party, of dancing, of worship, of singing, of banging cymbals. Because what we do with the joy that's in us is we express it. I said at the beginning that joy, this is, this is an outward expression of an inward reality. We just talked about that inward reality, and now we get to see in this passage people who have that joy expressing it. So what we see about joy is that not only is joy a fruit of the Spirit, but joy has its own fruits. It produces its own fruits. Things like rejoicing, thanksgiving, praise, also dancing, celebration, the, the practice of the skills that these people had. Guys, don't miss the fact that in this passage, you get the cultural and personal expressions of people's joy. And I say cultural because they're playing on things like liars. I don't know what a liar is. Are there any liar players in here? Okay, but guess what? We have people who have their own cultural and personal expressions of how God created them. So you being you is your expression of joy. That's what this is saying. These weren't just professionals. These were people, thousands of them, who got up on the wall and sang. If they were singers, they were singing. If they were instrumentalists, they were being instrumentalists. Some of them weren't very skilled singers or instrumentalists, probably, but they joined the choir. So the, the, the expression of this joy in us should be moving outward from us as rejoicing, as thanksgiving, as praise, and it's not just stuff that happens on Sunday morning. It is your entire life. So here's a question. To what extent is there a, a part of your practice of your faith? To what extent is there a, a part of your experience of your faith with Jesus that looks like some kind of celebration, that looks like some kind of praise or dance or thanksgiving? How is that a part of your life day to day? And I don't mean that as a shaming question. I mean that as a question. Something to consider. How, how could my life be marked with more dancing as an expression of this inward reality of being loved by Jesus? So joy results in rejoicing. But joy also rejoys us. 
think that's where that word rejoicing comes from. It doesn't just work in the direction of joy producing, rejoicing. The rejoicing we do can even carry our hearts back into a place of joy because this is still a reality. The buoy is a reality. This is where you live day to day. Remember, we're not talking about emotion. So if you wake up tomorrow morning and you feel down, that doesn't mean you don't have joy because we're not talking about emotions. If you, if you wake up angry, if the rest of your day is marked by sadness, because trust me, there are reasons why people in this room should be sad today. There is grief, there's brokenness, there's disease that's happening right now in this community. And so if you go home and you're sad the rest of the day, that doesn't mean your joy is stolen. What it does, and through worship, what it can do is it can help you to find that chain, find that rope to go down to the anchor, to ask yourself, where is my joy really? Another thing we used to do when I was a kid, when we'd go out and swim in the, in the river, these muddy, you know, can't see, you know, your hand in front of your face, is we'd go to these buoys sometimes and we'd literally like swim down holding onto this thing. You know, if it wasn't super deep, we'd try to go down and like grab a, grab a little treasure from the bottom and bring it up to my dad. And he'd be like, oh, look what you found. We literally would find the buoy and use the chain to go down to the bottom. That's exactly the opportunity that we have, those of us that know Jesus, is we use the, the floating of the buoy, the emotional life that I have by understanding it, by valuing it. I can use it to then find where my joy is really anchored in. And most basically and fundamentally, it is the love of Jesus for you. That sure, as Hebrew says, it's a sure and steady anchor of the soul. And it's a hope that there one day will be a time when I'm not getting rocked back and forth by that buoy. Because in heaven, there are no more tears. There's just joy. So that song uh, is so true that we sang at the beginning of the service. We were born to sing the glory of his name. You were born for it. You don't have to even get yourself to that place. You know that you were born for it. It's how you were created because your Savior loves you. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing. All right. Jesus, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you that it, uh, it, it, it truly does... Um, it finds us in all the places that we're at. It allows for us in many ways to be in all the different places that we're at and all the just uniquenesses of our own lives, our own stories, um, our struggles, our weaknesses, the way our emotions lead us. We, we are all infinitely unique in that regard and yet you find us in all of those places and your word finds us in all those places. And so this this beautiful passage of scripture is, is number one, a reminder for us of your deep, deep love for us. And it's an invitation to take joy in that, to find our joy in that, and to express that joy through song, through celebration, through feasting. I pray, Lord, goodness, I pray that, that the community of 12 South uh, would be one where this Thanksgiving dinner, the, 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 the smell of their relationship with Jesus the taste of their relationship with Jesus would be something so palpable that all their family would want it. That our whole community would want to come to that Thanksgiving dinner. Because the people of 12 South are experiencing the love of their Father for them. Do this, we pray, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.